Amen. For the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the practices of the church. We're doing a four-part mini-series, and we're trying to answer the question, what is the church supposed to do? When you look at the Bible, what is the prescription? What is the church supposed to do? In week one, we saw that according to the Bible, the church is to baptize believers in Jesus. Church is to go churches to baptize. In week two, we looked at how the church is to participate in the Lord's Supper or communion. And this week, we're going to talk about membership. In the New Testament, what we see is that the church is to practice membership. And my guess is that this practice might come as a surprise to some of you. Baptism and communion, not a shock to anyone. If you've had any background in church, baptism and communion, okay, yeah, the church is supposed to do that. But membership? (laughs) Really? Even for me, before I started studying this in the Bible in the last several years, when I think about membership, usually what comes to mind for me is Costco. That's what I think of. Maybe you like Sam's Club. My family, we are diehard, lifelong Costco members. I absolutely love Costco. (laughs) And I think the reason is because you go in there, everything's a good deal. Every end cap you walk by, you're thinking like, man, if I don't buy one of these electric toothbrushes today, I'm basically losing money here. (laughs) Like, look at the price on that thing. I mean, it's incredible. Somebody told me recently that you know you're getting old when you start to think that the clothes at Costco are cool which means I'm getting old because that's me. <laughs> like, I have a lot of clothes from Costco. I love Costco, but Costco, not just anybody can walk in there and shop. They have a person whose whole job, all day, every day, they stand at the entrance and they make sure every customer who walks in has what? Their membership card. That's right. You have to be a card-carrying member to get into Costco. And I think to most people, that's membership. It's Costco, it's Sam's Club, it's political parties. There's a, someone in our church recently told me that her and a few ladies from her community group joined a puzzle league, which is awesome. I'm like, where do I sign up for that? But in most of our minds, that's what membership is. You are a member of the puzzle league. You're a member at Costco, but when you bring that concept of membership to the Bible and look for it, it's going to seem ridiculous. You're not going to find that anywhere in the New Testament, and it's because you're looking for the wrong thing. So my goal is to show you that in the New Testament, the church absolutely is to practice membership. This morning, we're going to try to answer four questions. Question number one, what is biblical membership? What is it? If it's not the Puzzle League or Costco, what is it? Well, let me give you a quick definition. Very straightforward and simple. Church membership is a defined relationship between an individual Christian and a specific local church. That's what it is. Now, we could add to that if we wanted to get really precise. I think there are some other elements that we're going to draw out of the scriptures, but at a really basic level, church membership is a defined relationship between an individual Christian and a specific local church. So church membership helps answer questions like, if I'm a part of this church right here, what can I expect from the other Christians in this church? And if I'm a, if I'm a part of this church right here, what can I expect from the pastors of this church? 
It answers the question, if I'm a pastor of this church, what can I expect from the people I'm pastoring? Who wants to actually be shepherded? And who doesn't? Those are really important questions. And you have to have answers to those questions in order for a church really to be a church, to function as a church. Those relationships have to be clearly defined. Well, why is that? Here's a principle that I want to share with you. And I think this, this is a virtually universal principle that applies to almost every relationship that I can think of. And the principle is this. All healthy relationships have benefits and boundaries. All of them. Every healthy relationship has benefits and boundaries. This is true of relationships with individual people. It's also true of relationships with institutions and organizations. So just think about your employer for a second. If you have a job, most people, your job, there's a understanding of this is how much I'm going to work every week. Standard work week in the United States, 40 hours. That might actually be specified in your job description, or it's at least stated informally. But you understand, I'm going to work about 40 or 50 hours. And there's all kinds of benefits that come with that relationship. You get purpose and meaning. You get to use your skills in your job. You get paid by your employer. You probably get some sort of benefits, like a benefits package. You get benefits. But then there's boundaries. And your employer expects you to show up and work 40 hours a week. And if you don't, you have violated that boundary. And they're going to step in and say, hey, where are you at? <laughs> you got to come to work. This is what you get paid for. Or if your boss says, hey, I'm going to need you to work an extra 25 hours this week. So for a week, two weeks, three weeks, you're working 65, 70 hours. Eventually, they are violating that boundary, and you're going to say, hey, what's going on here? <laughs> this is not what we agreed to. I, I'm not working 70 hours a week, and it will break the relationship eventually. All healthy relationships have benefits and boundaries. So by God's design, your relationship with the church comes with some benefits. It comes with amazing benefits. What are they? Well, the church is described in many different ways in the New Testament, different metaphors. I'm going to show you just four of them and what they mean in terms of the benefits for members of the church. And there's way more we could talk about. This is just a little snapshot, a little taste of the benefits of being a member of a church. First, the Bible says that the church is the body of Christ. This is the passage from Romans that we used as our jumping off point. It's the body of Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans 12, 4. He says, now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. See the image here? He says, you have a body. All of you here, you've got a body, which means you have fingers and toes and you have arms and legs and kneecaps and you have skin and you have internal organs. All kinds of body parts many, many other parts. And each part has its own unique function. That's the picture. So let's just take one example. So just right now, let's do this together. This will be fun. Everybody just look at your pinky fingers. Just put them up like this. You got little pinky fingers. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I am very thankful for my pinky fingers. You don't have to hold them up anymore. You got a good look at them. I need my pinky fingers. I play guitar. That's like one thing that I do. And I couldn't do that without my pinky finger. And you think, man, a pinky, I could probably lose a pinky. That's no big deal. My guess is none of you want to lose your pinkies. You might not even be able to think. You don't play guitar or piano or anything like that. And you're like, I'm not really sure what I use my pinkies for. But all you would have to do is lose one, and then you're going to find out real quick, man, I need that pinky. <laughs> Wish I had that. Now, how useful is your pinky by itself? Just disconnected from your hand, disconnected from your arm, disconnected from the rest of your body. It's worthless. It can't do almost anything. Even your, think about your legs, like your legs disconnected from the rest of your body are totally worthless. How strong are your arms and hands by themselves? This is Paul's point. And he says the church works the same way. When the body comes together under the leadership and direction of Jesus as the head, we have strength. We're united. We're way more effective this is, this is why he says, you, you've got all kinds of different gifts. So you might not be good at leadership or teaching or hospitality or mercy or faith, but maybe you're really good in another area. And then your neighbor over here, your brother or sister, they're good at this. And your brother or sister over here, they make up for your weakness. And your strength covers their weakness. And you come together and we all have different functions. We're all wired in different ways. We're gifted by God's Spirit in different activities and when we become one under the headship of Jesus we're strong we're effective we can be fruitful next the new testament describes the church as the bride of Christ in ephesians 5:29 and you see this a lot where where the writers of the new testament they mix their metaphors and you see this here in ephesians 5 Paul's talking about marriage. He's talking about husbands and wives. And he says this, For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. He's saying, Husbands, love your wives. Care for your wives like you would yourself. He says, Why? Because this is how Christ treats you, since we are members of his body. Same metaphor, but now he switches gears. Verse 31, he quotes Genesis 2. He says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So he's talking about marriage, but then he says, I'm actually not talking about marriage. Verse 32, this mystery is profound. The mystery of marriage is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. The church repeatedly, the people of God repeatedly are described as the bride of Christ. And what that means is that God's design is that in the church you would experience his love. The way the way a husband loves his bride, you would experience his protection, you would experience his provision, you'd experience his self-sacrifice, you would experience his care that he cherishes and loves and adores the church the way a husband adores his bride. Now, how do you experience that, though? How do you feel that? How do you actually receive that provision and that care and that protection? Well, it does happen spiritually. There's a sense in which you experience that just between you and the Lord. But if we are actually members of one another and Jesus is the head, part of God's design, a big part of it, is how you would experience that is in your relationships with each other. 
This is how it happens, that you experience the protection and provision and self-sacrifice and care of Jesus through your brothers and sisters in the church. John 13, you remember after Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he said, just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Where does that happen? It happens in the church. Next, the church is the temple of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone, he's talking about Jesus, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Again, a little confusing. You have mixed metaphors. So Peter says Jesus is a living stone. He is the cornerstone, the foundation of the church. And you, Christian, individual Christian, you are also a living stone. You get built on top of the foundation of the living stone of Christ in his gospel. And you are being built with all the other living stones, which are other Christians, into the temple of God. A spiritual house. This is the idea. And you can't make a temple with one stone. You need all the stones. You need a series of stones to be able to build the temple of God. And I think it's hard for us to understand how radical this concept was to Jewish Christians living in the first century. In the Old Testament, if you were a part of the nation of Israel and you wanted to be close to the presence of God, you had to go to the temple. The Spirit of God dwelled in the innermost chamber of the temple, and you actually couldn't go there. Your relationship with God was mediated by a priest who would go in on your behalf with a sacrifice of blood. And this was so integral to the nation of Israel and their relationship with God. But what the New Testament teaches is that God's Spirit now dwells where? In Christians, in individual believers, in Jesus Christ. His Spirit dwells in you. Now, ironically, this is why some Christians today think they don't need the church. (laughs) They say, well, God lives in me. It's just me and Him. So why do I need church? Well, that is true. If you're a Christian, God lives in you. You have access to the Spirit by yourself. And yet, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. How how do you experience God's holiness? How do you experience his presence? You can experience it by yourself, but a major part of God's design is that you would experience it in the church, meaning through your relationships, not in the building. There's nothing special about this room. It's your relationships with other Christians where you see the holiness of God working in them. You see the presence of God. You see the joy of Jesus Christ in your relationships, through pain, through difficulty, in spite of circumstances. Church is to be the temple of God. Last one. Church is the family of God. 1 John says Christians become children of God. Ephesians says that in Christ you become a part of the household of God. The church is the family of God, which means your relationships in the church are not just with people in your community. They are with brothers and sisters 
that, w- that we, all have, we all have God as our perfect heavenly Father. Not only that, but God has given us our family mission statement. We share a common purpose that transcends our own little selfish desires. It's an amazing reality. And there's so many other metaphors that we could look at. That's just a little taste. And here's a question I want you to consider. Do these benefits that we just described, and I'm not talking about primarily your relationship. There's, there's all, the, all these benefits, they come to you in your relationship with God, but God's design is that they come to you through your relationships in the church. So the question is, do these benefits describe your relationships in the church? Just think about that for a minute. Do you experience people in the church as brothers and sisters? Do you experience the love of Christ directed towards you like a husband loving, cherishing, protecting, providing, laying his life down for his wife? Do you experience that in your relationships in the church? Do you experience the presence and the holiness of God as you worship together with people in the church, friends, brothers, sisters? Sadly, many, many Christians would say, not even close. No. No. And you can see it in the New Testament, church. You want it in your life, but it's not the reality of your experience. Why is that? Well, for many people, not all, but for many people, the problem is they want the benefits of the church without the boundaries. And that will not work. Remember, all healthy relationships have benefits and boundaries. You see this principle everywhere. Gave you the, princip- or the illustration of an employer and an employee, but just consider marriage for a moment. If you want to experience the benefits of marriage, you have to submit to the boundaries of marriage. That's the way it's designed. That's the only way it can work. So to enjoy the activities of marriage, you have to embrace the institutional boundaries till death do us part in sickness and in health. And when you don't, all you have to do is just look at our culture. Last 50 years, we have multiple generations that have sought the benefits of marriage without the boundaries. So people want sex. People want romantic love. People want relational intimacy with a partner without commitment and without monogamy and without self-sacrifice. And it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It just ends in heartbreak. It ends in single-parent homes, which God can redeem, but that's not His design. It ends in rampant STDs. People don't realize, most people don't realize, STDs were not a thing 100 years ago. They were exceedingly rare. It ends in generational poverty. For a healthy relationship, you have to have the benefits and the boundaries. And if you want the benefits of the church, you have to embrace the boundaries. Now, what are the boundaries? We've been looking at Matthew 28, the Great Commission, over the last couple of weeks. And in Matthew 28, the very end of Matthew's gospel, this is after Jesus has been crucified, resurrected. He is with his disciples for 40 days. He's teaching them. He's sharing meals with them. This is before he ascends back to be with the Father. And in Matthew 28, verse 18, it says this, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' final instructions. The church has referred to this passage as the Great Commission for hundreds of years. This is what the church is supposed to do. And he gives five commands. He says, go, make disciples, baptize those disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teach those disciples to obey everything I've commanded you, and remember, I'm with you always. Five commands. Go, make, baptize, teach, remember. This is part of where we get the importance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. He says the church should baptize, the church should remember. And you might be thinking, great, that's super helpful. (laughs) Now we know what the church is supposed to do. But what does any of that have to do with membership? He doesn't say go practice church membership. That's not in there. Well, here's the connection. Why does Jesus get to tell the church what to do? Have you ever thought about that? What, what Jesus commands here, these are not small, inconsequential things. These commands, in the years and decades that followed them, Christians left Jerusalem and they spread the gospel and the church to the ends of the known world at that time. In the beginning, virtually all of them were ethnically Jewish, which meant they were considered religious heretics. They were blasphemers. They were rejected by their culture. They lost relationships. They lost jobs. They left their homes. Some of them were thrown in prison. Many of them were killed to obey these commands. Why did they listen to him? Why does Jesus get to tell the church what to do and not someone else? Well, he answers this. In fact, it's the first thing he says in verse 18. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That is a wild statement. (laughs) Jesus, he's pointing out what they've already observed, by the way. He says, I have all authority on earth. And he proved it to them. He commanded the wind and the waves, and he was able to just make food out of nothing. He turned water into wine. He says, I have all authority, not only on earth, but also in heaven. This is why he cast out demons and he commanded angels. Jesus is God. Jesus has all authority. Jesus is the eternal Son begotten from the Father. He's the creator of the universe. What we believe is that the words of Scripture are inerrant, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And those words are Jesus' words. That's what it says in John chapter 1. And so it is the teachings and commands of the Lord Jesus that form the boundaries for church membership. This is a key principle. Membership certainly, certainly is about the benefits of being a part of the church. But church membership at its core, first and foremost, is about the authority of the Lord Jesus. That's what it's about. The teachings of Jesus which encompass both the Old and New Testaments. Jesus taught from the Old Testament, by the way. There was no New Testament. So Jesus authoritatively taught from the Old Testament Scriptures, and then his disciples wrote the New Testament Scriptures. So his teachings, they spell out, I'm going to give you a little snapshot of what Jesus is. How did Jesus' teachings press in and form boundaries in your life? 
Well, his teachings tell you what you should believe. They, they tell you what you should love. They tell you what you should prioritize, how you should behave, how you should speak, how you should relate to other people, how you should aim your life, what you should invest in and value, how you should respond when you fail, and way more. Way more. Jesus' commands and teachings, they infiltrate every part of your life and thinking, every part of your heart. There's no space that Jesus doesn't care about being the Lord over because he loves you. And so following Jesus is a radical way to live. It requires monumental buy-in. It requires faith and it requires submission. You can't follow Jesus without saying, Lord, I want to obey you. I'm not going to be perfect, but, but you are my king. You are my God. I do what you say. And the reason that's so important to understand when it comes to membership is that experiencing the benefits of church membership assumes mutual submission with other members to the authority of Jesus. That's what it assumes. So as a Christian... You're saying, this is what I'm giving my life to. This is what I'm aiming at. This is the standard I want to be held to. But what about you guys? Can I expect the same thing from you? We need to know that. There needs to be clarity about that. That's the question that membership answers. It helps define our relationships in the church, both the benefits and the boundaries. And when the answer to that question is unclear... And I've seen this happen repeatedly. You maybe have seen it happen. When it's unclear what the relationship is, what can we expect from each other, the church will be weak and confused. That's what will happen. If it's unclear who, who's actually under the authority of the Lord Jesus, and we're not sure and we don't know how much can I hold you to the same standard I'm holding myself, the church will be weak and confused. Because we need to know who's in. (laughs) We need to know who's on the team. And what does it even mean to be in? This is why Jesus can say things like this in Matthew 18. He says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying if someone is out of step with his commands, that's what sin is. Sin is actions, attitudes, words, thoughts that are not aligned with the commands of God. And Jesus says when somebody's clearly in sin, there is a process for calling that person to change, to to repent, to submit once again to the authority of the Lord Jesus. He says you start by just simply going to that person, having a conversation one-on-one. He says if it doesn't go well, if they dig their heels in, if they say, no way, this is what I'm going to continue to do. This is how I'm going to continue to think. This is what I'm going to continue to believe. Then he says bring one or two other people into the equation. Maybe they'll listen to them. And, you know, you need help. We, we need to press in a little bit more. 
He says, if they still won't change, if they still won't repent, if they still won't obey the authority of the Lord Jesus, tell the church, get the whole church involved. And if the person won't listen even to the whole church urging them to repent and obey Jesus, then you need to remove them from the church. They ought not to experience the benefits of the church if they are not willing to adhere to God's good boundaries. And that whole process that Jesus prescribes for enforcing obedience to him in the church assumes that everybody knows who's in the church. You can't, you can't follow this process. It, it's incoherent if you don't know who the church is, who's in the church, who's not in the church. And it assumes that those in the church are under the authority of Jesus. Jonathan Lehman, on church membership, he says this, church membership is not only a status, It's an office, complete with a job description. And that job is to protect, preserve, and proclaim the gospel of the new covenant. If you are a member of a church, it's your job to enforce the authority of the Lord Jesus in the church. Did you know that? It's not just the job of the pastor, (laughs) which I'm very thankful for. It's the job of the church, all of us, The whole church being a member of the body of Christ, it is an identity. It is a responsibility. So not only do you have the permission, the authority, you actually have a God-given responsibility if you're a member of a church to to say, no, we're going this way. We're under the authority of the Lord Jesus. We're going to keep each other in check when it comes to walking in obedience to him. That's part of who you are as a Christian. And when you begin to view it that way, You see it everywhere in the Bible. You see it all over the place. Where do we see membership in the Bible? This is our second question. Let me give you just a few quick examples. In the Bible, first, to become a Christian meant to be added to the church as members. In Acts chapter 1, after the Lord Jesus ascends, it says there's about 120 Christians. The church is about 120 people. And then at Pentecost, in chapter 2, Peter preached the gospel to a crowd of thousands of people. And it says this in Acts 2, verse 40. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. That's pretty good. (laughs) That would have been exciting to be a part of. How did they know the number of people that were added to them? How did they know that? Because there are boundaries. There were boundaries then. There are boundaries now. The people who repented, accepted the message, and were baptized became a part of the church. And the others did not. Second, the church was easily identified by believers and non-believers. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, the Apostle Paul, before he is converted to Christianity, Before he met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was a persecutor of the church. And it says this in Acts 8.3, Saul, however, was ravaging the church. That's Paul. Greeks called him Paul. The Jews called him Saul. Saul was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. Now, it doesn't say Paul was ravaging Christians. 
specific individual Christians, like he had a hit list. It says he was ravaging the church, but he was able to identify which specific individual men and women belonged to the church. He didn't go to their Sunday gathering. He went to their homes. So it was clear to him, he's not a believer, but it was clear to him who is part of the church and who is not. Third, the church is to remove certain members. We already saw Jesus prescribing this in Matthew 18. 1 Corinthians 5 says the same thing, a little bit different scenario. But in 1 Corinthians 5, the situation is you have a church, you have a group of professing believers who have repented, turned from sin, been baptized, made a profession of faith in Jesus. And there's somebody who is living out of bounds in rampant sexual immorality, in unrepentant, unwilling to change. And Paul says, nope, that's not okay. He says you need to remove that person. 1 Corinthians 5, 12, he says, what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. The only way to obey this command is to know who's among you. Paul's whole point is he says, I'm not worried about non-Christians practicing sexual immorality. <laughs> like We would just have to go live in the mountains if we wanted to escape that. Not worried about that. I'm worried about the person who claims to be a part of the church under the authority of Jesus, but their life consistently rejects his authority. He says that person should not be a member of the church. You should no longer affirm their desire, their profession of faith to live under the authority of Jesus. Fourth, pastors are responsible to care for specific people, and people are responsible to submit to specific pastors in the Bible. 1 Peter 5.2, Peter says, shepherd God's flock among you. He's writing this to pastors, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Hebrews 13.17, the other end of the equation, writing to church members who are not pastors, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. There's a lot more we could say about that, but in order for pastors to shepherd people among them, entrusted to them, in order for people to submit to pastors who have responsibility over them, there has to be clarity in that relationship. So we have people who visit our church all the time. We have people who are sort of loosely connected, then we have covenant members, and that helps answer the question, who am I supposed to pastor? Who am I responsible for? I need to know which of you guys like actually want to be pastored by me. Because some people, they don't want to be pastored. <laughs> when you say, hey, brother, sister, like I see this thing going on in your life, like how can I help? How, how can we help kind of move you in the right direction? following the commands of the Lord Jesus. And they say, how dare you? <laughs> oh, you don't actually want to be pastored. And so church membership brings clarity to that relationship. Some people, they're like, hey, I need help. I want to follow Jesus. I don't know what I'm doing. They want a pastor to come alongside them, help them, serve them, teach them, maybe even correct them gently, provide accountability. Once a church gets to a certain size, sometimes those people go overlooked. Church membership helps both ends of that equation. Those are just a handful of examples we see in the Bible. There's dozens and dozens more. Next, question three. How do we participate membership at, how do we practice membership at Walnut Creek Church? We have four structures in place. We have a membership class. We have a membership covenant. We have member interviews and then member meetings. So we have a four-part class. It walks through the gospel. It walks through our statement of faith, what we believe doctrinally, 
what the Bible teaches about core issues. It walks through our mission, vision, and values as a church, and it walks through our member and elder covenants. And so the class helps make clear to be a member, here's what you're saying you believe. Here's what you're saying the church can expect from you and vice versa. The main way we accomplish that is through our membership covenant. And we don't have time to go through the whole membership covenant. There's seven statements that we affirm in our membership covenant. I'm going to give you just the first one as an example. So this is not top secret. This is just restating what the Bible expects of us in following Jesus. So the first part of the membership covenant, first statement says, I will seek to grow in my relationship with God by regularly reading the Bible, by being faithful in prayer, by being dedicated to fellowship, and by pursuing personal holiness. And so what that does is that among members, people who sign that covenant, what we're saying is this is what I'm aiming at. What we're not saying is I'm going to read my Bible perfectly for one hour every day for the rest of my life. That's not what we're saying. We're saying what I'm aiming at is being committed to filling my heart with the scriptures. And so if you have two members and one of them says, man, I haven't read my Bible in a year. What we're doing is we're giving each other the green light to say, hey, man, what's going on there? Like, tell me about that. And if the person says, you know what? I'm just not into it anymore. At some point we say, nope, like that's not acceptable. Like what's going on in your heart? Why do you not value God's word? And we're giving each other freedom to press in and say, dude, remember, this is what we're aiming at. We're going to treasure God's word because we want to know him. We want to grow in our relationship with him. The covenant brings clarity to that relationship. After the class, people who are not members and they want to proceed with becoming a member, you have an opportunity to have an interview with a pastor, which here in Altoona, that's me. You have an interview with me. It's not like a job interview. It's just a way for us to get to know each other. I want to be able to hear your testimony. How'd you come to faith in Jesus? I want to be able to affirm, okay, yeah, you understand the gospel. You're a Christian. I want to walk through the covenant with you and make sure you know what does that mean practically for your life. I want to have an opportunity to answer doctrinal questions. Not all Christians should be members of the same church. There are secondary doctrinal issues that are really, so like at our church, we don't practice infant baptism. If that's something that you have a strong conviction that Christians should do, then we can be brothers and sisters in Christ in the universal church sense, but you're probably going to be frustrated here because we're not going to baptize your babies. You know what I'm saying? So there's an opportunity to talk through those doctrinal issues. And then for people who are members, we have regular member meetings about three times a year. These are times where we can come together and we can have a family meal. Metaphorically, we can talk about things that are very difficult to talk about otherwise. And I'm not talking about bad things. I'm talking about financial matters, uh, major initiatives, welcoming new members. There's a setting where we can pray together for an extended period. We can do all kinds of things and have conversations that we couldn't normally have as one big group of members. Now, the question is, why are those structures necessary? Because you don't see member meetings, you don't see member covenants, you don't see member classes or interviews in the New Testament. Well, here's why. 2,000 years ago, the cost of identifying as a Christian and participating in the church was very high. It was very high. People routinely lost relationships, jobs, social status, family members. They even lost their lives if they professed faith in Jesus. Today, the opposite is true. The cost is virtually non-existent. The cost is you got to free up some time on a Sunday morning. 
And there are all kinds of incentives in our modern culture for people to loosely associate with the church with no desire to follow the lordship of Jesus Christ. People want friendships. People want to meet someone of the opposite sex. People want networking opportunities, maybe for their business. There's all kinds of reasons in our culture to get involved with a church. And formal membership, the structures at Walnut Creek, they help cultivate and protect what was informal and organic in the first century. So if we were a church located in Syria or China today, we wouldn't need any of this. We wouldn't need it. Because if you said, hey, I believe in Jesus and you're baptized, you could be killed. You could be thrown in prison there. So it's pretty clear, okay, I think that person's on the team in that setting. But that's not the way our culture is. Last question. Who is membership for? Membership is for people who have put their faith in Jesus. That's who it's for. Membership can sound very performance-based when you put it in these terms. People who obey the rules is in, everybody else is out. Is that what the Bible prescribes for Christianity? No, definitely not. Church membership is for Christians, which means it's for people who recognize they haven't and they can't live up to God's standards. That's the baseline. This is the starting point of the gospel, is that we are all sinners. You are a sinner. If you're here this morning, you're a sinner. You've already failed to meet God's standard, and you're going to continue to fail. And in our sin, what we deserve is God's punishment. We deserve his wrath. We deserve hell. And the good news is that God loves us so much that Jesus came. God became a man, and he went to the cross as a sinless holy, perfect man, and he took the punishment that you deserve. You do nothing to earn God's favor. You do nothing to earn his forgiveness. He offers it to you freely in Christ. It's only by grace that we have part in any of this. So membership is for Christians, and it's for Christians who have demonstrated repentance and faith through baptism. In the New Testament, baptism always comes before membership into the church, which makes total sense. Because in church membership, you're saying, I submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus. I want to obey all his commands. I'm not going to do it perfectly, but that's what I'm going to aim at. So you can't say that on the one hand and then turn around and say, except for the command to be baptized. I don't want to obey that one. (laughs) I don't want to obey the first one. The rest of them I'm good with, but I don't want to be baptized. It doesn't make any sense. This is why at our church we require baptism for membership and for participation in communion because it is the first act of obedience commanded by Jesus for new believers. In the New Testament, you're baptized, then you are joined to the body of Christ in the fellowship of communion. And the reason we want to make those boundaries really clear is because we care about everybody being able to experience the benefits of being a part of our church in a really healthy way. So we're not saying you're not a Christian if you haven't been baptized. We're just saying you need to obey Jesus and be baptized so we can affirm your desire to be under his authority. Okay, just to close, one question. If you're not a member of a church, why not? That's my question. If you're not a member of a church, why not? Now, it might be because you're not a Christian. It might be because you need to become a Christian. You need to put your faith in Jesus. But if you are a Christian, then I would encourage you, consider going through the membership class. It's four parts, four weeks. I know that's a big ask. That's going to be coming up in October. 
in the, sort of the middle part of October. The dates, the registration, all that's going to open up really soon. We're going to do it on Wednesday nights here at the church. So look at your calendar. Try to make it a priority to take that class. And I just encourage you, join the body of Christ. It doesn't have to be our church, but find a church that you're excited about and become a member there. Now, if you are a member, I want to encourage you, take the health and fruitfulness of your church very seriously. Take that very seriously. Church membership is a big deal. I'm going to read what Jonathan Lehman says one more time because I love this quote. Church membership is not only a status, it's an office complete with a job description. And that job is to protect, preserve, and proclaim the gospel of the new covenant. That's your guys' job, those of you here who are members. And I want to just urge you, encourage you, take responsibility for the body that you are a part of. Our health as a church depends on you. It really does. It depends on your embracing that role to be a healthy member who holds other members accountable to following the Lord Jesus in love. Let's pray. God, thanks for, again, the church. Lord, I know this is a lot to take in, but God, I pray that you would just move in our hearts. God, that we would see how much you love us. Lord, that's what this is really about. We want to experience all the benefits of being in Christ. Not just in our relationship with you in private, that's monumentally important, but in our relationships with each other in the church. So God, I pray we'd be a church. I pray we'd be a church that loves you deeply and loves one another deeply. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what we're going to do now.